Good evening. This is attorney Vincent Davis, and this is the Divorce and Family Law Talk radio show. Today is Wednesday, January 18th, 2017, and I'm joined this evening uh, with my associate, Daniel Noten. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce... Hey, Dan. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law experts answer your questions about divorce, children, money, property, custody, spousal support, and more. Dan, how are you this evening? I'm very good, thanks. How about you? Good, good, good. You know, before we jump into our uh, regular show, I wanted to give our listeners an update on the Johnny Depp uh, divorce situation. And I'd like to read this update. It's from the TMZ.com website. And it was posted, I believe it was posted today. It says, Depp's lawyers, Disso Queen Laura Wasser, tells us, quote, we are all pleased to put this unpleasant chapter in Mr. Depp and his family's lives behind them. Having his request for entry of dissolution of judgment granted today made it particularly lucky on Friday the 13th. Oh, so this was just a few days ago. Johnny Depp and Amber, Johnny Depp gave Amber Heard more than $7 million in their divorce settlement. She also gets Doggy's Pistol and Boo, Arrow the Horse, and a Ford Mustang. Don't feel sorry for Johnny. He keeps all of his property scattered all over the globe, L.A., Colorado, Kentucky, the Bahamas, and France. He also gets to keep his 42 vehicles, including cars, motorcycles, boats, and golf carts. As for the $7 million, Johnny has already paid 200000 He owes $1 million more in three days from Friday. He'll owe another mill next month, another mill in May, and still another mill in August. And then there's the 500000 in August, and finally, $2.3 mil in February of 2018. And that's all she wrote. So I guess the... The Depp divorce is over. Well, that's good um, to hear. You know, there were allegations about the, uh, the domestic violence and everything. Um, but I and guess apparently, that was it, apparently he had been alleging that um, she had breached their confidentiality agreement by uh, renewing her claim that she was an abuse victim, um, according to the Daily Beast and the Daily Mail. Of uh, back about a month ago, so it's nice to see that they've resolved that uh, he had been holding up that payment according to those uh, publications. And did you know that uh, they uh, were saying that she intends to divide the funds between the American Civil Liberties Union and the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles? I wonder if she's still going oh, to. Oh, she's that. giving away. She was intending to give that money away to divide it between those two. Um, institutions. Which is, oh, she course, wasn't going generous. to keep the seven million. Not going to. No, she was going to divide it. Now I don't know if that's changed, but I I doubt it has. Interesting. Um, she must have money of her own or a career of her own. Was she a celebrity? I I don't recall. Uh, well, let's see. Amber Heard. I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure of what her celebrity background was, honestly. But, uh, boy, she must have had some substance to be able to um, donate that much money to those institutions, very worthy institutions, too. You know, I I remember talking about this on one of our shows several months ago with attorney Raj Matani, who's now a family law lawyer in San Diego. And I think he did tell me that she was, you know, a, a celebrity and had her own, I think, acting career. Oh, that's nice to hear. 
So there's one other, um, I guess, piece of celebrity gossip that's in the news right now regarding Brad and Angie, Angeline, or Jolie. Um, their celebrity divorce. Apparently, uh, they have hired a, um, according to uh, Vanity Fair, have hired a private judge, Jill Robbins, uh, to handle their matter. Had you heard anything about that? I I had just heard a rumor that uh, they had gone to private mediation. So, and uh, that's of course a very sensible way for celebrities to try to minimize the public exposure of what could be difficult or embarrassing revelations. You know, um, apparently, attorney Laura Wasser, who I think is in Beverly Hills, represented Johnny Depp, and she is also representing Angelina Jolie. Oh boy. And uh, I think Vanity Fair is quoting her as saying uh, that they're going to have probably a four-day a four-day trial, and it's going to be in front of a um, <clears throat> private judge. What can you tell our listeners about uh, private judges or using private judges in uh, divorce cases, Dan? Well, uh, the advantage, of course, is that. Uh, private judges uh, are much more amenable to scheduling um, problems or scheduling uh, expedition rather than um, having to have the crowded court system uh, dates, you know, that may be months away. A private judge is much more amenable to custom designing the schedules. And uh, secondly, uh, it is a good possibility that you can keep things a lot more confidential with a private judge just because people won't know where the location is unless they do a lot of research. And they may not know how the proceedings are going or when they are. And it's just a much more controllable situation for a celebrity to do it that way. You know, Dan, not all states allow private judges in family law matters. As a matter of fact, I can think of a a few that do. Um, Kansas does, Missouri does, Nebraska does, but not all states allow a private judge who's often, um, you know, someone that's stepped down from the bench or a retired judge to hear cases and, you know, the civil arena, including family law. Have you ever used a private judge in a divorce case? Um, let me go through some years of practice. I, I uh, haven't used a private judge in a divorce case. I have used them before in civil matters uh, many years ago. Um, but uh, the the one disadvantage, of course, of the private judge is that now not only are you paying your attorney and having the exposure to paying the other attorney, but you're also paying the judge's fees as well, which uh, can be quite expensive naturally. So it um, it does lend itself much more to very wealthy individuals. You know, according to the Vanity Fair article, Michael Jackson hired a private judge to oversee his divorce from Debbie Rowe. Charlie Sheen used a private judge to divorce Denise Richards. Renee Zellweger uh, used a private judge in splitting with Kenny Chesney. And uh, apparently billionaire supermarket magnate Ronald Burke paid a retired judge $73,000 to preside over a 10-day trial. Wow. So um, you're right. It does cost a little bit of extra money, but according to the Vanity Fair article, um, uh, there are perks. They're sometimes more efficient, and as you said, easily more easily scheduled, and they are more private. And I guess when you're a celebrity and your privacy, and you know you don't want everything to get out there and uh, onto TMZ, uh, you you are able to keep some of these things very, very confidential. 
You know, Dan, we we represent a client in a um, in a uh, where they used a private judge, and the uh, other spouse. Um, we had the the wife and the other the husband was a very well known um, entertainer uh, in Hollywood and uh, been in several movies, TV show, the whole thing. And and a private judge was used, and the case was settled, but the judgment was never recorded. So you never knew what was actually in the community estate. You never knew what the you know the actual um, settlement was uh, between the two people. He didn't know anything about their custody and visitation because they did have children. And um, you know, if you just look in the legal file right now, because they did have to file a, you know divorce proceeding. All it says is that a divorce proceeding was filed and it was and it has been concluded. Hmm. What an interesting uh, well, way to keep all of your business uh, private. Yes, it, it is very much that way. Um, but you'd uh, have to be relying upon just the contract law to enforce it. Um, and uh, you probably could not invoke the, the courts to enforce, uh, to enforce provisions that were not made part of the judgment. Uh, and also, you know, there's the advantage if you go that route. There is the advantage of of not having to do um, the um, final declaration of disclosure and that kind of thing. So, right. but right. It, it is softer in enforcement. There are people who swear by private judging in the sense that it can be cheaper, even in a, a middle class divorce, because you're saving. Uh, the expenses that will happen with various continuances and delays. And sometimes those continuances and delays can cost attorney's fees that would exceed what you would pay for the private judging. Um, there is that school of thought. So we may see more and more of it in the future. Right, right, right. Okay, Dan, let's go to our questions uh, for this week. We're going to be talking about uh, domestic violence, custody, and, and visitation. One of the first questions we have is, what exactly is domestic violence? How is it defined? Well, that's a great question, and it's a very broad one, too. Um, domestic violence is defined according to uh, Section 6203 of the Family Code. And that says that uh, abuse means any of the following things. To intentionally or recklessly cause or attempt to cause bodily injury, number one. Uh, or sexual assault is abuse. Or to place a person in reasonable apprehension of imminent serious bodily injury to that person or to another. Uh, or to engage in any behavior that has been or could be enjoined uh, per section 6320, and I'll uh, speak to that in a second. That kind of opens the barn door in a way. Uh, also, that statute says that abuse is not limited to the actual infliction of physical injury or assault. There was a, a point of view in the past, uh, I think associated with Richie versus Conrad, um, that feeling that uh, physical injury or physical contact was necessary to uh, ground a domestic violence order. But this particular statute refers to 6320 of the Family Code, and uh, without getting too technical, let me just point out that 6320 also prohibits or calls um, the following to be abuse or domestic violence. It can be abuse. Annoying telephone calls can be abuse under the domestic violence protection. Destroying personal property can be. Um, annoying people by mail. Disturbing the peace of another person, uh, as broad as that is, and as ambiguous as that can be. Uh, impersonating another person can be 
uh, abuse and can be prohibited by domestic violence temporary restraining orders. So it is it is quite broad, and um, I think we've seen an expansion of it over the last 10 years considerably. Uh, there are some cases that uh, have applied this, and one case that is commonly thought of is the Nad Carney case, Nad Carney. In Nad Carney, the uh, court prohibited uh, electronic um, texting or emailing back and forth um, in a situation where it, it wasn't clear that it was uh, threatening physical violence so much. It's just intensely or, or intense emailing. And that case was, some people feel it's the far edge of uh, domestic violence. But that has been upheld by the Court of Appeals. So um, that's as, about as, as broad as we can get. You know, uh, One case said that the court can go so far as to protect the domestic tranquility of people, that if you disturb the domestic tranquility of another person, uh, um, and it's a qualifying relationship, if that's the case, you can get a temporary restraining order against them. So we can imagine those are very broad terms, disturbing domestic tranquility. Um, that's one of the reasons why the courts are quite busy with DVTRO cases. Now, it's interesting in family law cases that I see a lot more uh, domestic violence type um, type hearings. But, you know, one of the things that I, I learned a few years ago, there are domestic violence type cases in the non-family arena and in the family arena. And depending on which arena you fall into, uh, it's handled by different departments of the superior court. So if you're related uh, or have some type of relationship with someone, those are generally handled by the family law department. And if you're not related, and say, for example, uh, a neighbor or a uh, um, someone that you don't know is harassing you, those are civil types of uh, uh, domestic violence cases, and they're handled by the civil department. Um, but, you know, domestic violence, I, I don't want to say it's become more prevalent, but um, more people are, uh, you know, trying to protect themselves. And, you know, sometimes I, I see domestic violence cases, Dan, where people are using domestic violence restraining orders as a weapon to gain advantage over another person. Have you seen that they in your practice? Um, only about every other day. <laughs> I think it's very <laughs> common. It's very common these days that uh, domestic violence is becoming more and more part of divorce work, and probably because of the breadth of those definitions that I just went through. <clears throat> and one one thing that's very interesting to me, Vince, is the difference between the DVTRO, Domestic Violence Temporary Restraining Order, that you're speaking of in family law, and the civil harassment restraining orders that you see in the civil courts, you know, where there isn't this relationship. Uh, for example, if uh, some neighbor is bothering you, the civil harassment temporary restraining order. The big difference that I see between those two categories as far as proving the case and the difficulty of the case is that civil harassment restraining orders require clear and convincing evidence, whereas domestic violence restraining orders don't. So if you can qualify for domestic violence restraining orders under various qualifications, it's a, a, an easier way to go as far as the proof of the case. And to qualify, you have to be either a spouse or a former spouse to get a DVTRO or a cohabitant or a former cohabitant, or have been in a dating relationship with the person that you're uh, seeking the DVTRO against, or be um, a parent of a child with the victim. And the next one is a little unusual. You have to be a, a person within the second degree of consanguinity to qualify to get a DVTRO as opposed to a civil harassment TRO. 
and uh, I'm always uh, mystified by these degrees of relationship. But for example, a second degree of consanguinity would be a, ch a child would be, say, the, the person was a child. Uh, um, the parent could be the first degree, and a grandparent could be the second degree. You could do that backwards, so the grandparent to the grandchild would be two degrees. Uh, the court, my understanding is that DVTRO cannot be, you you won't qualify under these categories um, unless you uh, fit one of these. And the court lacks jurisdiction of your case if you don't. So if the court doesn't have the power to act if you don't qualify. It's a very important consideration for the judge. Otherwise, you'd have to go through that higher proof of the civil harassment or workplace harassment, temporary restraining, or that kind of thing. That's a very important point, uh, Dan, that you bring up. And I guess if you're facing or wanting to bring a restraining order, uh, you should have to probably figure out which department, civil or family law, you should belong to, because there's a big difference between preponderance of evidence and uh, clear and convincing evidence. Dan, give Absolutely. us a give us a, a an explanation about the differences between those two burdens of proof. Well, um, a preponderance of the evidence is just that it's more likely than not that the fact occurred based on what evidence the judge has heard. And we commonly refer to that as a 51% um, analysis. And you could say that if you had two uh, you had two weights on a scale, each on one side, and they're equally balanced, and you put a feather on one side, and now it tips, that could be a preponderance of the evidence. It could be just a slight amount more than 50%. Clear and convincing evidence, which is a legal standard used in different ways in family law, that the courts sometimes, I've heard that many times, but it's... Um, uh, it's some judges think of it as in terms of like 80%, much more, uh, an, an amount that a reasonable person uh, would not argue about, that reasonable people would all agree that that's clear and convincing. So it's it's just an amount. It's not quite beyond a reasonable doubt, the criminal test, but it's somewhere between the preponderance and much closer to beyond a reasonable doubt. I think 80% is a good mental way to think of it, but it's it's um, it's so clear that no reasonable person would disagree with it. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it tough Very for good. civil harassment heroes. Mm -hmm. Now, you, the second question, Dan, you've kind of covered all covered it all way, and that was what relationships does domestic violence apply to? Well. One way I I like to see one one example I think is fairly typical you see is say mom is seeking a restraining order against dad and to protect the children mom has and she also wants to seek it against dad's new wife well she can certainly get it against dad because she was married to him and had a child by him either of those would qualify but dad's new wife never lived with her never married her etc. So dad's new wife, she'd have to go after her in a civil harassment. Uh, that's just one way that we commonly see um, of severing you know, in these cases. Interesting. Interesting. Um, our next question is, who can be protected by a DV restraining order? Well, um, the, one of the, one of the uh, good examples of who cannot be protected by DVTRO is if you had uh, a um, a roommate who is just simply a roommate, someone you were not having a relationship with, but they were just renting a room from you um, while they were living in the same house, the court has held that that would not uh, be a uh, cohabitation of such kind that a DVTRO could be granted. Um, the, the persons who could be protected are, of course, um, the uh, the children um, or anyone under those qualifications that I gave earlier. Um, but a, a true roommate would, for example, not. So you, if you're trying to get a restraining order against a, 
a, a roommate that you did not have a relationship with, that person would be an, under a civil harassment case. That's interesting. Is that a new case or? Um, uh, no, I think that's been around for a few years. Uh, I think it's been around for a mm -hmm. few years. It's. It, uh, um, I think there has to be a relationship between the parties. It, it can't just be, um, you know, someone who's renting a room, for example. Okay. Very good. Our next question is, what are the different types of restraining orders available? Do you have to pay filing fees? Well, that's the good news about a DVTRO, is you don't have to pay filing fees for them. And uh, I believe that the sh the, uh, the court officials, the sheriffs, uh, will serve them for free also. Um, now, I've mentioned that there's a civil harassment temporary restraining order is a different type of restraining order. There's a criminal restraining order. Um, if you uh, were involved in a fight with someone and the police were called, the police uh, might come and arrest the person that they felt they had probable cause to feel was guilty of assault or battery, <clears throat> and they take them to jail, book them, and they might issue a, a criminal restraining order, call a judge in the middle of the night and have a judge issue a restraining order against that person. That's limited uh, to a certain uh, number of days. I think it's five days, but I'm, uh, that's my impression. Um, and. Uh, after that expires, or preferably before it expires, you might want to file a domestic violence restraining order, a civil harassment, or workplace restraining order, or um, what have you. Um, those are the ones I've heard of. Uh, are there others that you can think of there, Vince? No, I think that you covered them. I um, I can't think of any 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 other types of restraining orders. Now, you know, oh. typically. Go ahead. Uh, there is there is one that I uh, haven't mentioned. I believe there's a new law that's come into effect uh, for a gun violence restraining order under uh, Penal Code 18170 and Assembly Bill 1014. Um, I haven't seen that yet, but there is some thought that that might be becoming more and more frequent. It's just an, an unusual one. Can you tell me what the difference is between a klutz and a non-klutz restraining order? Uh, klutz is uh, civil law enforcement um, transmission or something like that. I don't remember that last word. <clears throat> but uh, it, uh, what it consists of is a, a network that the law enforcement officials around California use um, to... Um, have a database for restraining orders, and so that you know, if a restraining order is issued in San Diego, someone in San Francisco, an officer in San Francisco, could pick up on it uh, in case they had apprehended someone who was violating it, or in case something happened outside of the jurisdiction. It's just a way for the law enforcement to be very efficient about knowing what orders are in existence out there and, and uh, shouldn't be violated. Um, in the old days, before, you know, back in dial-up, before dial-up computers even, you know, dial-up network, um, back in the old days, they didn't have that kind of a network system. They might have just the court records without having an efficient way of finding out uh, uh, what orders have been issued. And um, so there is still a, a custom among a lot of lawyers of having restraining orders be non-clets. The idea being that if a violation of a non-clets restraining order occurred, that the uh, guilty party wouldn't be arrested. They could be hauled uh, before a judge on a contempt matter or could be sanctioned by a, a family law judge, but not arrested. However, uh, that is a misnomer they're educating all of the judges across california now not to issue non-clets orders some still do i've noticed um so there's a split in the school of thought about it but um <clears throat> the uh 
they say that even a non-Coletz order, an order that says it's non-Coletz, can be registered with the, uh, the law enforcement officials and become a Coletz order. So uh, those of us who used to issue non-Coletz, we're being very careful about them now for fear that they could become Coletz situations. You know, you wouldn't want someone to think that they're not going to be arrested when they violate a restraining order and, go out and then they get arrested. That's the bottom line here. So we have to be careful and assume that they're all going to be Coletz. Ah, okay, very good. Uh, moving on to the next question. How long does a temporary restraining order last? And how long will a permanent order last? <clears throat> well, they can be, at the initial issuance of a restraining order, it's, it's anywhere up to five years. That's the rule. It was three years, but that's been changed in the last couple of years. So now a judge uh, can issue, he can issue it for a day, or she could issue it for a day if she wanted, or for a year, or any period up to five years. But uh, five years is the limit for the initial issuance. However, um, if you've been guilty of domestic violence or domestic abuse, don't feel comfortable that after five years it's going to end because it can be reissued for another five years. There's actually a case where a judge issued it uh, on the second issuance, issued it for just a couple years, and that judge was overturned by the Court of Appeals because the Court of Appeals said the law only allows the judge one choice, uh, well, three choices, I guess, on that reissuance. Uh, she can issue it for uh, five years or forever or not reissue it. That's the only choice that she has, five years or forever, basically. So they can go a very long time. <clears throat> that's amazing. I, I didn't even know that. It is. It's a little shocking, and that's one of the things I want to impart to our listeners tonight is this field of domestic violence has become extremely powerful and long-lasting. And what's more, uh, it, it is easy to extend the domestic violence restraining order. The test is to extend it after the initial five years, say, to extend it, you don't have to prove that somebody's been injured or somebody hit somebody. All you have to prove is that a reasonable apprehension of any conduct for which a restraining order may be granted has occurred. A reasonable apprehension. It doesn't mean that someone had to physically threaten you. One case, it's uh, the Inaji case. In that case, um, the, uh, the parties... Uh, the 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 guilt the party subject to the domestic violence restraining order found the victim in a department store and started talking to her uh, in a in his in a foreign language which very few people use and because he was speaking a foreign language she convinced the court that he was trying to conceal the communications that he was making and that was enough to justify a reasonable apprehension of, of uh, harmful conduct, and the court allowed a, a, uh, an extension of the restraining order. So they're very easy to extend, and they're very hard to terminate if, they're, if one is granted. Say that uh, it's, it's extended for another five years or forever, and you go in and say, well, judge, things have changed now. I want you to, to drop it, please, to terminate it. That's very hard to do, and um, I can't... Oh, yes, the case is Leffler versus Medina. In that case, the the, uh, the man went in and asked to terminate it, and they tried the question for three or four days. And the court held, and the Court of Appeals held, that what is necessary is to prove a change in law has occurred or a change in the facts. And it's unlikely a change of law has occurred. And the change of facts, you know, were, were tried at the, at the beginning, so that's unlikely to change either in most cases. In Leffler versus Medina, after uh, the, the male lost his trial of five days, the court sanctioned him about $25,000 because in um, domestic violence restraining orders, the test is not just that the person needs attorney's fees, it's the prevailing party 
uh, gets attorney's fees. So there's a prevailing party test. And he was sanctioned about $25,000 for trying to terminate a uh, DVTRO. I guess that'll teach him, huh? 25000 That's wow. a tough one. Boy. Dan, what can uh, DV restraining orders include? What types of orders? Well, this will surprise a lot of our listeners. <clears throat> uh, in addition to the stay away um, order, you know, stay 100 yards away from her, or uh, no contact, um, uh, in addition to that, no stalking, no harassing. It, the court can order no telephoning, no texting, no emailing. All that, of course, can be ordered. But in addition to that, uh, it can be ordered that uh, provisions for animals be made because we don't want someone threatening the the pet of of a, a person or or harming a pet, for example. Um, dwelling exclusion orders can be made, and I'll come back to that in a second. And uh, orders regarding personal property in the nature of community property, quasi-community property, or separate property, orders can be made about that. If the parties to a domestic violence restraining order are married, a spousal support order can be made. And uh, if they have children, whether they're married or not, a child support order can be made under the authority of a DVTRO, or that is in the, in the DVTRO court. So child support orders can be made. Um, of course, orders about surrendering firearms are required. At any time a DVTRO is granted, you know, the firearms of the guilty person are ordered to be surrendered to the sheriff. <clears throat> Powerfully, child custody and child visitation orders can be made. And uh, we have a, a, a section called Family Code 3044, which says that if a DVTRO has been granted in a, in a case where there are children, that the innocent party will be presumed to be the more fit parent, uh, everything else being equal. Uh, now, that is a rebuttable presumption, but that can be and is frequently used, I see it a lot, uh, used in the, in the uh, family law courts to get a leg up on child custody matters. That is to get an advantage in child custody or visitation. <clears throat> um, now, I mentioned dwelling exclusion orders. In a family uh, law case, one party can exclude the guilty party, the party who's guilty of domestic violence, can ask the judge to exclude him or her from the residence. And uh, as long as that party um, they don't even have to be the owner of the house to exclude the other. In fact, I've seen owners of homes excluded by the, their uh, wives, girlfriends, uh, that kind of situation, even when the wife or the girlfriend didn't have an ownership interest. All that the, the innocent party has to prove is that they have the right to possession under color of law. And that usually is, is that they, uh, the guilty person allowed them to be a tenant at, at will or, a, or to live there in the house, that kind of thing, <clears throat> just that they had the right of possession. Now, that doesn't mean they stay there forever, but it can be quite a, quite a period, and it can be very um, advantageous in a divorce situation, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and to get the dwelling exclusion order is a little bit different of a test, too. Uh, there, you'd have to prove an assault or a threat of an assault occurred, or um, there's a risk of physical or emotional harm to a party or to the child. So if you prove that emotional harm to the child of one of the parties could occur, then the court could exclude the parent who's causing that, uh, or causing that risk of harm. So that could be just simply emotional harm to the child. Very good, very good. You know, Dan, before I go on with the rest of these questions, I want to take some time um, to talk about the hearing. We've been talking about the law in general with some specifics. I think it's important for people to understand 
just knowing what the law is or what some of these general concepts are is not going to get you a TRO or not necessarily going to allow you to defend against a TRO. And I think uh, people should have a little, I guess, familiarity with um, uh, the concepts of procedure and evidence if they're not able to, you know, hire an attorney. So Dan, tell us, how do you start a DV case um, against somebody? What do you do? And, and, and what happens at the initial hearing and at the subsequent permanent hearing? Sure. Um, you start one off by filling out a DV-100 form and some of the other associated forms that go with it. And you can locate these on um, uh, the court website. Uh, you can get the forms off the website, or you can go to the courthouse and get those forms, or you can go to an attorney who does this area of law. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, you fill out those forms, and you'd have to allege, uh, as, as I've mentioned, you know, the threats or the harassment or the uh, disturbing the peace or all that, <clears throat> and the specifics of it. And then you take those papers. Uh, to the local court, your, the court that has uh, the venue of the case, that is your local court. And you go to the proper department, and um, you can do this without giving notice, advance notice to the other party, uh, if you think there's a risk of that party committing violence if you give them notice. So then you take those papers to the proper department, and you uh, file them with the court, and then the judge reviews them, and uh, sometimes the judge will see you in open court. Sometimes the judge will review them in chambers, and you'll hear from the clerk as to what's been issued. <clears throat> now, once the judge issues that ex party, ex party means just from one side, an emergency order. Once that judge issues that, then there will also be a date set on the papers saying that the parties are to come back um, I think the court can grant up to 20 days. It's either 15 or 20 days if um, if there's um, weekends or what have you. So I think it's about 20 days. <clears throat> so the hearing then that you come back to uh, at that time, then you will have had to have served the other side, the, the um, presumed violent person. You'll have to serve that person with the papers, uh, the minimum amount of time in advance of the hearing. And so at that hearing, that person will be present, presumably, and you'll be present. And and then you need to prove your case. And it isn't just a matter of sitting back and saying, well, judge, do the order. You have to put on evidence, uh, convince the judge. And it's your, uh, you initially have the burden of proof of proving that the domestic violence has occurred or the abuse has occurred. And once you've made what's called a prima facie case, that is the elements of the case to prove the abuse, then the other side has the burden of disproving it or showing that there was a defense to it. <clears throat> now, this can be done under the rifler rule by papers if nobody is objecting to the papers going into evidence. But, of course, uh, someone with an attorney may very well object on the grounds of hearsay. Hearsay are statements made outside of court um, uh, offered to prove the matter asserted. And uh, if hearsay is objected to, then you would need to put on live testimony of live witnesses about what happened uh, to prove your, to put in the evidence to prove your case or to disprove the case, whichever side you're on. Now, that's where so many people get um, flustered and flummoxed about these cases because it becomes very technical and difficult uh, without a lawyer. And sometimes these the results of these hearings can be so consequential because they can affect the child custody, uh, that is your relationship with your children, for potentially years. So it is can be extremely important. You know, you can be ordered out of the house. It can it can affect where you're living. Uh, it can affect your record for employment forever. 
so those are those factors are so important that sometimes we have to put on trials and uh, testimony and uh, sometimes subpoena the police officers that were involved have them testify because just simply putting in a police report if if the other side objects to hearsay or foundation and or foundation uh, that can prevent the police report from coming into evidence too without the, the police officer there so this can get very complicated very testy as far as tempers and uh, and expensive but there's so much at stake that you have to stop and think about it Vince I'm sure you have something to add there too you know I was listening to what you were saying and one of the things that I think a lot of people make the mistake um, about going to court, either prosecuting a DV action or, you know, defending against a DV action, is a lot of people um, think that the judge is going to do what's just and proper, you know, and that justice will win out. And the problem with that strategy is, is that, you know, everybody's sense of justice is different. Um, you know, what may be justice to me, Dan, might not be justice to you. And I think um, uh, when you have that strategy, you're, you know, taking a step out into the abyss and you might just walk off that cliff. Um, because sometimes that strategy, and I'll say maybe 10% of the time is going to work. In my opinion, 90% 90, 90 of the time it's not going to work, and you're going to come out of the courtroom scratching your head wondering, hey, why didn't I win? And you're going to call the judge unfair and the process unfair. But typically what, had ha what has happened is you've gone into the football game not knowing the rules. And in court, there are rules. There are rules of civil procedure. There are rules of evidence. And, um, you know, if you don't know those rules, uh, you're going to be at a severe disadvantage. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, or I ask them, I say, hey, in professional football, why is a first down 10 yards? And the response is, it's just because it is. The answer is, it's 10 yards and not 15 and not 5 is because that's just the rule. Now, in football, most people know that rule. But when you go into court, the courtroom, most people don't know the rules for civil procedure. So most people don't know the rules of evidence. So you're going to be caught at a disadvantage. Um, so you got to know those rules, and you have to use them uh, to your advantage to either prosecute or defend your case. You know, Dan, a few months ago, you and I did a trial together um, and the opposing attorney first tried to get into evidence a bunch of documents uh, regarding our client's medical records. And I don't know if you remember, but initially I made an objection as the documents that he was trying to put into evidence were hearsay and they were without foundation. Right. And... It, it, the judge agreed with me, and he his reaction was almost as if, what do you mean? You're objecting to my documents? Like, nobody ever does that in family law. And the judge, you know, looked at me and said, well, you know, they're hearsay. They're without foundation. And if you're going to object to them, they're not coming into evidence. And, you know, Dan, when we were doing that case, that that basically gutted his case from the very beginning and kind of threw him off track. So when people go into court, they, they have to know um, a little something about procedure and about evidence. And I always say, look, you, you know, if you can afford to hire a lawyer, well, if you can afford to go talk to a lawyer, a lot of lawyers give free consultation. Um, and if you can't, uh, afford to hire that lawyer, you know, maybe it's a it's a paid consultation, but maybe that person can give you uh, some tips. And if the case is important enough, um, you know, you should hire that lawyer. And don't forget, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, the prevailing party in these cases 
may be entitled to attorney's fees by law. So if you get the restraining order, you can you may be able to get your attorney's fees. If you successfully defend against the restraining order, you may get attorney's fees. What do you have to say about that issue, Dan? Well, I think there's there's uh, some fairness in that. Um, you know, in a in a common situation where the parties where um, reasonable minds could differ about whether domestic violence has occurred, and maybe the court is not going to be so pressured, feeling to, uh, that it needs to give attorneys fees. You know, where where it's a close case, but in situations where it's 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 clear that someone really was abusive, uh, it is a good punishment to them to have to pay the attorney's fees of the other side. And of course, my understanding is that it, that takes a, uh, a a balancing of the means that the parties have as well. That can be considered by the court in the prevailing party situation and domestic violence. That it can be you know, what we call a 2030 uh, situation too. So uh, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get attorney's fees, but it, that is a factor that, that you don't normally see in family law cases, you know, regarding custody or visitation, uh, support, you know, you don't see a prevailing party provision. So it is useful. I'm I'm happy to see it. Very good. Very good. So let's um, go back to our questions. Let me pull these up on the computer again. Do you have the, let me see. Do you have the next question in front of you? Sure. Yeah. Um, Will a DVTRO affect my custody order? Now, we've talked about that, and I, I want you to picture, you know, the courts are gender neutral. They're not supposed to help men more than women or women more than men. And so you may have situations where someone feels quite um, justified in committing domestic violence. Say a, a, a wife finds out her husband's cheated on her. He comes home half intoxicated and smelling a perfume and she slaps him you know because of that that slapping does constitute domestic violence in that kind of a situation uh, he could go into court and say the domestic violence been committed 3044 goes into place that presumption I spoke of earlier therefore I'm the more fit parent and uh, it doesn't take even uh, you know a conviction of domestic violence to get that 3044 presumption. The Fahoda case says that if the facts are there, the court can consider it even if there's no adjudication of the domestic violence. It makes it even more powerful. But say that the husband goes in, now he gets custody of the children based on uh, that domestic violence committed by the wife. And if she's not careful how she's handling the case, maybe the court doesn't understand why she slapped or the extent of of uh, how badly the slap was or how, uh, his misconduct, any of that kind of thing, and she could lose custody or have him get more custody than he would normally get just because she wasn't careful about having an attorney properly handle it. Uh, you know, the judge, if all the evidence was heard, the judge might feel that, yes, it was wrong for her to do that, but there are other rebuttal factors making it so that it's a little more forgivable that she slapped him and maybe it wouldn't affect custody. But if she does nothing, if he gets a custody advantage and she does nothing, she could be there for years uh, with him having more custody than her because of that one oversight and not being careful about it. So um, that's how it can affect your, your custody situation. And, uh, you know, custody is all about the stability of the child's relationship, the stability of where the child has been thriving. So because of that, you know, if the, if months go on after a DVTRO has been issued, giving custody or changing custody to one parent, that becomes stronger and stronger. What started off as a thread now becomes a chain. And it's hard later for the court to break that stability of the child's relationship. So that is very dangerous in, uh, in, in domestic violence and child custody matters. All right, let's go to our next question. 
um, will I be able to protect my children and family members with my DVTRO? Uh, the answer is yes, if if they're qualified. Um, for example, you won't be able to protect your mother who lives down the street because she doesn't live with um, live with the the party who you're seeking the DVTRO against. But you would be able to protect your children if they live there with you. Um, and uh, so it goes it goes to the qualify the qualifying factors that I spoke of at the outset this evening. You know whether the judge has the jurisdiction to order. Um, the DVTRO based on that relationship. But the most common situation we see is, is uh, children of parents. So you will be able to protect your children, yes. Any other people you can protect on the DVTRO? Oh, yes. It would be anyone, you know, as the categories I went through, uh, anyone uh, who was living with the party um, being sought, anyone in the second degree of relationship, uh, so you know, family members within the second degree, um, and of uh, consanguinity, um, your former spouse, your uh, cohabitant, your, anyone with a dating relationship, you know, these are people that uh, would be involved, could be involved, could be protected. All right, the next question is, will the DVTRO uh, stop custody and visitation orders for the abusing parent? Well, they may. There's no automatic, there's nothing automatic about it. Um, the, the court, uh, when faced with the issuing a DVTRO, and a request about custody, that that can overrule, that court can overrule prior custody arrangements based on what the court sees as in the best interest of the children. So, uh, you know, say uh, dad had full-time custody, but now dad has committed abuse against mom, and uh, mom goes to court. Uh, mom could ask the judge to change that custody arrangement that dad had and give her custody or change the custody and however she and the, she can convince the judge ought to be done. So yes, it, it can stop prior custody and visitation orders for the abusing parent. And it does have an effect with respect to custody and visitation orders. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there has been some jocular discussion that the DVTRO is the poor man's divorce. And in some ways it can be, you know, because it deals with all, a lot, not all, but a lot of the issues that a divorce can deal with other than dividing property. Um, you know, custody, support, spousal support, dwelling exclusion, a lot of those things uh, can be dealt with. You know, very quickly, Dan, we had one of the last questions is, what happens if the DV occurred at home while the children were present? Well, that goes right to the question of the best interest of the children. There's a saying that witnessing abuse constitutes abuse. If the children see a parent hitting the other parent, that's a terrible example. It, it has a, a frightful effect on the children because it intimidates the children. It, it terrifies them. Um, there have been cases dealing with this very situation. The uh, One of the more famous ones is the CQ case, in Ray CQ, where dad committed domestic violence in front of the kids. And, uh, however, the, the kids, two of the kids, decided that they nonetheless wanted to not have, they were represented by their own attorney, they wanted to not be subject to a DVTRO. They wanted to not prohibit being around dad, and the court allowed them to be around dad, even though they had witnessed abuse. But that's probably because they were uh, older children, and they had their own attorney, who, um, and they urged that they wanted to stay with dad. There's another case called the Gao case, which is quite interesting. Mom uh, sees on Skype, sees dad grab the child, uh, manhandle the child, and 
mom, when she comes to the United States, she asks the court for a restraining order because she witnessed dad manhandling the child. And the court granted mom a DVTRO against dad for mom's protection because she witnessed dad abusing the child on Skype. So this, there are a lot of uh, alternatives and uh, developments that can happen because of the DVTRO impact on children. Well, Dan, we've run out of time. I want to thank you for joining us this evening, and we'll oh, talk pleasure. next week. And, I, and I'd like to talk about pro some property and support issues next week. We'll see you next week on the radio. Good night. Good night.